Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Sidetrack Music Podcast, second episode of season two. Uh, we're back and it's a, it's a pretty big episode. Uh, but before I introduce our guest, I'll say hello to Zephyr. Hi Jules, how are you? I'm good, I'm very good, thanks. Um, yeah, and today on the podcast, we have no, no Zach, unfortunately, but um, we have brought in a, a replacement, well, more than a replacement, a much more highly qualified replacement in uh, Tom Robinson, who uh, founder of the Tom Robinson band. Um, he, he has co-written songs with Elton John, Peter Great, Gabriel, Tour to the Police. Um, it's an extensive resume, but uh, and now he's a, a, a broadcaster uh, with the BBC, hosting three shows a week. Um, so, Tom, back, thanks so much for, for joining us. Oh, Jules, nice to meet you, and great to see Zeph there too. We actually live opposite each other, so uh, I know that man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Zeph has been using his connections. Oh, yes, yeah, works very for me. Much so. <laughs> Um, I'm going to apologise in advance. My, I'm, I'm not where I where I usually am, so I don't have my mic with me. So I'm recording on my AirPods. So if the audio quality isn't what it usually is for me, I apologise. And yeah, it's also six in the morning um, <laughs> for me out in Canada. So I'm trying not to wake everyone up and not speak too loudly. So we'll do our best. Well, there's an upside. To, um, there's an upside to the AirPods though, which is uh, although the sound quality isn't as good, it does make you look much cooler because you haven't got to wear these bloody things. <laughs> that is true. I, I've already messed up my entire hair. Oh man, this. It's it's a, it puts oh, a dent in my hair. It's a nightmare. It's awful. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have to have another shower after this. Um. So yeah, I mean, and now, so wherever you're listening from, um, we uh, please do check out our socials. I will say actually at the beginning of the podcast, one, um, we've got at S Music Podcast. Uh, we are now putting out video clips and all that. Um. Uh, you know, on a regular basis because we are recording videos. So, we, you know, we're now on YouTube as well. So uh, we'll get straight into it. Um, and as the guest, Tom has set the brief. So Tom, what did you set for us? Well, I'm interested in how little you need, like the less is more approach, you know, in making records. We hear so much production and stuff and the current hits. Even Ed Sheeran, who started out with an acoustic guitar and a voice, has all kinds of auto-tune and backing guests and all the rest of it. So I thought, let's find great songs that just work with one guitar and one voice. Um, back to basics, basically. So, uh, yeah, does that work for you? Yeah, that was a really good brief. Um, so we'll go to Zephyr, what, what, what you brought for us first. Yeah, so I brought um, Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, and the studio version has actually got lots of kind of production on it. But the the live version that she does is just her playing her guitar and singing, and it's a really amazing thing to listen to. So I think we'll just have a listen to it first, and then we can have a little chat about it afterwards. So sure. here's Fast yeah, Car. Trace, yeah, Trace Chapman, uh, the 1988 at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. My old man's got a problem. He live with a bottle, that's the way it is. He says his body's too old for working. His body's too young to look like his. My mama went off and left him. Wanting more from life than he could give I say somebody's got to take care of him So I quit school and that's what I did You got a fast car So 
fast enough so we can fly away. We gotta make a decision. We leave tonight and live and die this way. Cause I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder, and I, I had a feeling that I belonged, and I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Wow. Yeah, it's such a great what track. A boy. What a yeah, yeah. So I wish I could play longer into the chorus, but we have limited uh, clips. Well, available. well, the structure actually is very—it's very. It's very ver- there's like four verses before you actually get to the chorus. It's actually a, she makes it's a you lot work t- for it. She makes you, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, it's the quality of the voice, isn't it? I mean, she—if a new talent came along today, you know, in 2022, with a voice of that quality and lyrics of that quality, and that total presence she just as soon as she lays into the vocal you go oh my god that's the real deal right there she's not shitting about that is absolutely the real deal it's amazing and even when even though it had to be produced and pretty fired to get on the radio it's still the voice that sold it still that simple guitar part it's wonderful yeah and Mm. it's it's only four chords um throughout the whole thing i mean the chorus does I think it uses a simplified version of the chords because uh, I think there's a major seven in the the verse and somewhere to make it sound a bit more, you know, it gives it that slight spice, I guess. Um, but um, it's it's pretty much the same chords over yeah. and over and over. And it, it, it just, you really get, yeah. It really grounds you though. Like you don't need more because the lyrics are so emotive and like it's such a, the lyrics are very sad as well. They're, I can't really remember exactly what it's about, but it's something about trying to run away from a really a life that's really sucks, mm. and she just wants to get away with someone. And then I think by the by the end of it, they realize she realizes she can't get away from her situation. It, it's actually really sad. Yeah. I, th- I think I think about that repeating chord pattern too. You know, the, that's such a classic thing to do on a great classic song. Is if you make the chord pattern repetitive and simple, it means people can cover it. It really invites mm. school bands to have a go at it. Uh, and if you're doing a jam session on it, you don't have to call out this chorus coming up or any of that stuff. Everyone can just dig in. So it's great for mm. bands as well when you have a song that's just the same chords. I've always tried to do that myself, you know, in, as a songwriter, to try and make it as simple as possible, uh, basically because I hate rehearsing. So uh, <laughs> the, band, the band can learn the stuff really easy. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, uh, yeah, you're talking about the structure earlier, and it's like it's the same chords, but it actually build this kind of tension just as it goes on, build, and then when it breaks into the chorus, even though it's the same chords, I mean, obviously in the acoustic version it's slightly different, but in the the studio recording, you know, it brings in the drums, and I think it's it's a really really powerful moment where they finally get into the chorus, and especially I don't know, even when when you when you know it's coming, because uh, yeah. like I guess that's probably my favorite part of the song, um, but yeah. Well, yeah, really. It's actually, I, I almost, uh, well, I, I almost chose the Tracy Chapman song actually for the brief, which I would have changed finding out that <laughs> Zephyr, uh, you've chosen Paul's car. But yeah, I almost, I almost did uh, Give Me One Reason 
which is another great oh, song of hers, right. which, which showcases her really good voice. Um, yeah. Okay, so Tom, what, what song did you bring? Well, I chose a Stephen Fretwell song, and it's a same same thing as Zephyr was talking about, uh, which is we've got a version that is completely him and a guitar. But then when they get to the studio, they can't resist putting some pretty stuff on it and just kind of tarting it up a bit. So it pings a bit on the radio. And um, it's such a shame that they feel they have to do that because Stephen Fretwell, just the voice, just the guitar, just a killer song, really does the business. This is a man who uh, had some early success in the early noughties, uh, 13 years of layoff, going off um, having kids, having a family, came back and teamed up uh, with Speedy Wonderground Records and Dan Carey. And he made the whole album in two hours, just walked in, did the songs one after another, and then Dan did the production stuff afterwards. And this song's called The Goshawk and the Gull. The playing song Brought you to your knees Can't change you to a car in disbelief. And you are an angel. Yeah, it's, it's from an album called Busy Guy, which uh, came out at the end of last year. And uh, that version, he just went into a, a studio with that Spanish guitar uh, and obviously plenty of equipment to get the reverbs and really good mics to make it sound really popping but uh, it is just one voice one guitar one great song uh, possibly not in the Tracy Chapman league but it's pretty bloody good and it's great to know people are still doing songs that good today uh, and, and getting, yeah, his voice is cracking getting some success with it what did you guys think of that when you heard it I really like the repeating the kind of pattern on the guitar which doesn't change really at all and then when it when he kind of brings in the extra I, I guess you'd call it a kind of not really bass line but the kind of counter melody maybe that he kind of brings in on the guitar because I, I, I always find it really impressive when guitarists do that because I have no idea how they <laughs> could ever do that because they're playing some pattern and they do something else with that I'm just I'm always confused but it's very it just sounds really cool because it feels like there's someone else has just come in and started playing but it's actually still just him just you know just playing really really well. good point that because uh, by holding it in reserve you know some guys some people go onto youtube with just like a ukulele and so they've just got the high range stuff and it works they make the song work but it never that low end never comes in but what he's done is he's done the high end just to get you going on the song and you think you've heard it all and then suddenly he drops that bass note in uh, on the bottom string and it does like like you say it's it sounds like a bass player has come in and it just gives you that movement but within the tiny tiny world of one guitar so so exciting 
Yeah, 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 mm. definitely. It's uh, yeah, I really like that pattern. It kind of adds, there's a like, I don't know, a real like emotion to it when he drops down that that uh, yeah, bass line. Yeah, I mean, I also just it's not a very musical point, but I quite enjoyed Fretwell. It's a very good name for a guitarist. <laughs> I don't know if you guys noticed that. Well, <laughs> It's got to compensate from, for coming from Scunthorpe, which is a great town. <laughs> but it, it's a great town, but a very unfortunately named. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely does make up for it, the name. That's a very good mm. guitarist name. But yeah, no, that was, that was a really good song. I, I enjoyed listening to it. So, uh, the whole, uh, yeah, the whole, album it. Is worth, whole album's worth checking out. Um, and uh, as I say, it was recorded in two hours, which is phenomenal. But it's called Busy Guy. Um, basically because he hasn't been. He hasn't done anything for 13 years. Uh, but it's written in the, at the end of a marriage, heartbreak, a lot of... It, it's a lot deeper and darker than his earlier work when he's just trying to be a pop star. And it's quite nice to hear somebody who's had that kind of all teeth and smiles, look at me, isn't my life great kind of what we would present on Instagram nowadays is, you know, my perfect life in song and then come back after those, all those rough edges have been knocked off and it's just been through the mill. And you can hear that in the texture of his voice on the whole album. It's, it's, um, I like people to sound a bit broken. It just sounds more real. (laughs) There we go. You'd love Radiohead. Um. (laughs) So true. So true. So what have you got? What have you got, Jules? Yes. So I mean, I I feel kind of bad now because I I had you going a hundred percent acoustic because my track isn't entirely acoustic. So I've gone um, with Babylon by David Gray, um, a song released I think nineteen ninety nine, um, and yeah. So it's I mean the main the main character of the song is in the little guitar riff that you kind of hear during the first. Um, that you'll hear it here in a sec. Um, and they add in some kind of atmospheric stuff during the chorus and just like in the transitions between the chorus, which I will apologize for. Um, but, but, uh, it is, I mean, I think the, the song itself definitely characterizes the, the less is more kind of thing. Um, the way that he builds into the chorus, I think it's a, it's a really kind of powerful, uh, sound that you get in the chorus uh, and his what like it really emphasizes his voice and the guitar um, so yeah I'll play it now and we'll, we'll uh, talk more about it in a minute Saturday I'm running wild and all the lights are changing red to green moving through the crowds I'm pushing chemicals are rushing in my bloodstream only wish that you know I'm seeing it so clear I've been afraid To show you how I really feel Admit to some of those bad mistakes I've made And if you want it, come and get it Crying out loud The love that I was giving you Never in doubt. Let go of your heart, let go of your head, and fail it now. Let go of your heart, let go of your head, and 
right. So the longer that went on, the less acoustic it got. Uh, <laughs> take your point though take your point it's still it's still DIY he made it in his flat mm. in South London I think he lived in Clapham at the time and he just recorded it himself budget of nothing financed himself and it's just songwriting quality that that cuts it it's and and the truth of his vocal is, mm. is what's doing it it's mm. not it's not like uh, I don't know BMG or Sony or somebody has put them into Abbey Road with a top-notch producer and decided this is going to be the next big thing. It's somebody in their flat doing it themselves, and he toured that totally solo and acoustic, and uh, fantastic result. What a great song! Yeah, yeah you could you mm. can take out all the production and it's still a really really good song like um yeah like you said it's kind of like one of those home producers that now it seems like a lot of musicians are turning into i mean that's what i'm turning into sitting in my room just making stuff on my computer and you know not going out because the, the records just don't make those deals nearly as readily anymore and yeah and you can just still make great songs just from your room just on your own with a guitar and you don't need, and you and you can produce it by yourself as well. And he did produce it by himself, but he doesn't need it either. It's still a great song. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, in the nineties as well. Like, uh, it's not like you know, the technology wasn't. It's not, it's not the same as that. You can't just use a laptop, you know, <laughs> as you can now. So, yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I really like that song. I kind of rediscovered it recently. Um, and I've been listening to it way, way too much. And I thought, well, I mean, and as soon as you said, the less is more, this one, it kind of jumped into my head. I, and, I uh, totally, such a great choice there, Jules, because um, it is a timeless song. And I think what, what, what all, these th- all these three songs have really shown is uh, this really important point is all you have to be is good. You know, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to have insider contacts. You don't, you know, David Gray didn't have any of that. He just made the record and all it had to be was good. And it was. And it took four years before that was a hit. It was White, White oh, really? Ladder. Uh, yeah, he, I think he made it in 98 in his flat. Oh, right. Just put it out on his own label. And then he toured the States with uh, Ian Matthews or someone. Uh, Dave Matthews, yeah. And Dave Matthews saw him wowing audiences with one guitar night after night and decided to put it out on his own label in the States. And then that came out in the UK. Nothing happened. Radio wouldn't play it. It it was just went completely by the by. And to the music industry, they thought, oh, that's a flop. Forget about it. But radio in Ireland went, bloody hell, that's a great song, and started playing it because all it had to be was good. And it, it became huge, you know. Wow. I saw 100,000 <laughs> copies in Ireland or something. You know, the population of, I don't know, I don't know how many there was, but it was a huge number. And it was only after Ireland went crazy for it that then Belgium went crazy for it. And then the, only then did the <laughs> UK... Yeah! And only then did the UK oh, record on. company go, oh, well, maybe we should try putting <laughs> yeah. it out again. Yeah, that's uh, for, for, for a nation which prides itself on musical talent to, to let but, the Irish and the Belgians get there first. But, but, but Jules, they've, those are two nations with great musical talent. But, but what they don't have is our obsession with being fashionable. So mm. it didn't matter to them if it was in the enemy or not. It didn't matter to them what Zane Lowe was doing or, you know, it wasn't Zane Lowe, it was Steve Lamack at the time. But none of that mattered. It just, they just went, is it any good? Yes. And 
it, what, the proof of the pudding is that in 2022, you picked that song out of whole of music history. You chose that song because it endures, because it's great. Mm. Good songs test, All they stand had to the test of time. Great. It doesn't really matter how old they are. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally with you on that. All right. And well, that's, uh, I think, a perfect place to end part one. Okay. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna take a, a short break and we'll be back in part two with a uh, an interview with Tom as well as talking about uh, the new music that he that he presents on it on his radio shows. All right, welcome back to part two. Um, and yeah, so part two, as usual, as usually we do an artist spotlight, but obviously with a guest, we will uh, put this artist spotlight on Tom. Um, but before we do, I'll do a, a bit more of a uh, slightly more detailed history than I said at the beginning. So Tom Robinson is a songwriter and broadcaster, you didn't know, uh, leader of the Tom Robinson band, uh, enjoying hits in the 70s with 2468 Motorway, Don't Take No For An Answer and Up Against The Wall, amongst others. Uh, debut album Going Gold in the UK. In the 80s, formed Sector 27. Uh, which was very successful in the US uh, and resulted playing Madison Square Garden with the police, um, which must have been quite something. <laughs> uh, you've uh, co- co- co-written songs with Elton John and Peter Gabriel, which I'm definitely going to be asking about in a bit. Uh, in the 90s, while consist- uh, continuing with a successful solo career, he became a successful BBC, currently hosting uh, regular shows on Radio 6 Music, and he supports up-and-coming artists through the BBC Introducing Programme. Uh, so he's still releasing music, uh, Only The Now, came out in 2015, and he's also been a prominent uh, LGBTQ rights activist throughout his career. So there's the, uh, the brief synopsis. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I mean, I'll start off with, you, you said earlier, um, you don't like rehearsing. So is playing live uh, what, what really kind of gets you going as, as a musician, as opposed to the studio process? The studio process is kind of like... It's it's more akin to painting, uh, insofar as you've got a canvas which is your blank tape or whatever you, you know digital vir- virtual tape, and you're kind of putting colours on it and putting it together. The song is the thing that you're painting; it's the subject of the painting. But w- when you're in the studio, you're trying to portray it in the best way possible. Whereas when you play live, I don't know you put the thing itself on the stage rather than the painting of it. It doesn't matter whether you have this reverb or that reverb or which drummer is playing on it necessarily. It's what we've been seeing there with David Gray. When he went out live with just the guitar, that was that was just presenting the thing itself, whereas what he did in the studio was the portrayal of it. But the rehearsing thing came uh, very early on because I'd been in a band before the modestly named Tom Robinson band, uh, uh, called Cafe Society. And we'd signed to Ray Davis of the Kinks, who'd uh, given us a, a record deal. And we thought, well, he's such an expert. He's so such a genius. We can trust him to look after our careers. So we turned it all over to him uh, as inexperienced 20-somethings. And the album sounded dreadful. Co- well, compared to what we were like live, it didn't sound anything like we were live and uh, sold five or six hundred copies worldwide. So it was clear that wasn't going to work. 
as as a thing. So I had had to go out and form a band and play in pubs and stuff. And I went round all the venues that had given us gigs for the old band and said, "Can I have a gig for my new band?" And the landlords of these pubs went, "Yeah, all right. What's the band called?" And I oh. <laughs> Oops, uh, uh, it's the, um, uh, the the Tom Robinson band because <laughs> I couldn't think of a name in time. Uh, and then, having got five or six gigs in the book, I then went round all the musicians I knew, calling them up and saying, "Are you free on this day? Are you free on that day?" Like a drummer, a guitarist, a bass player, just so that we'd have enough musicians to do the gig. Uh, and then, once I'd got a full lineup for each of the dates. I then had to sit down and write some songs that could be learnt in the soundcheck. So we got to that thing of the repeating, the repeating chord pattern and the very simple arrangements, and uh, the the uh, fifteen minutes of fame that we enjoyed at that time was all down to a song called Two Four Six Eight Motorway, which is just the same chords going round and round and round all the way through. So dead simple to teach it to a band, uh, just. It's A, E, D, and then A. And and uh, I was a very kind of rudimentary bass player as well, so uh, it just needed a one light, you know, one note line, boom, 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 just all the way through. And somehow it worked. And it had that thing that school bands learnt it, which is, uh, again, because it's nice and simple. And... Uh, Mm. There's a lot of bad covers of 2468 Motorway out there on YouTube, if you look. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I thought the school band is interesting. I saw the Top of the Pops video of, of that, and you're all kind of dressed in a kind of vague, I don't, I don't know if it's meant to be a kind of school uniform, but it's like loose ties, and it looks a bit kind of like, you look a bit like sixth form. Yeah. Is, is that that a, was a de deliberate thing. I mean, I was 27 at the time, so... Uh, basically, way too old to, as as far as I thought, you know, um, ideally, people who appear on top of the pops should be late teens, early twenties. I thought, um, in my in my <laughs> ageist way, uh, and so I thought I was way past it. So, I, part of the thing of actually wearing a school tie and a white shirt was that it was a very simple, very cheap stage look that could be easily copied by the audience. Um, and the other thing was that it did have the effect of making me look younger at the time um, and it was also in in line with the punk look because a lot of punks just wore fucked up school uniforms and uh, that 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 kind of was funny to actually see somebody with spiky hair all over the place and a ripped shirt and then a school tie on it so uh, it was I'm not sure I'd do it again but I did it at the time <laughs> I'm sure that'd be very entertaining to see that now <laughs> in a school uniform <laughs> oh god yeah just rip out the one from every <laughs> school sorry. yeah by the time th by the time 30 came along it, the time was long past <laughs> when I could get away with it um, well talking of playing live then uh, is, is what was Mad is Madison Square Garden the favourite place that you've, you've played or is, is, it, uh, is there a more intimate <laughs> well a big story I, I'll tell you quickly about Madison Square Gardens because um, it was just sheer luck that we happened to have the same record label as the police um, and that they needed a support act at short notice to play some of their stadium gigs when they were first breaking through in I think 81 something like that 
And so, yeah, we got to go on at Madison Square Garden and it's terrifyingly big, huge thing. And the whole audience is paid to see somebody else. So what do you do in those circumstances to try and make a connection with the audience? And it became apparent, whatever you do, you've got to do it big. So you mm. you don't go, hello, we're called Sector 27, uh, we're from England. You go, hello, how are you? Yeah. And you, you do big gestures. And then about two or three songs in, I, I said, um, I dedicated a song to John Lennon, who'd been shot very shortly beforehand. And because it had happened in New York, you know, we were from England was the only connection that we had. The song wasn't about John Lennon, but you had to try and make a connection with emotionally with the audience. So if they didn't cheer, it meant they didn't like John Lennon. So they had to cheer. And that meant that they were cheering, yeah, although we were on the stage. Um, and so it was a bit of a cheat, but that's how we kind of cracked the ice and managed to survive. In the middle of the police's gig, uh, Stuart Copeland, the drummer, had um, hate was hated Sting by this time. And he actually had the words, can we swear on this podcast, by the way? You already have, it's fine. There's no, there's no problem. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, all, across his tom-toms, he... He'd written in felt tip pen, "Fuck off, you cunt!" And every <laughs> and every time Sting heard on the drums behind him, "Dum dum dum boom, dum boom boom boom," he knew exactly what what Stuart was saying to him. Oh, anyway, Stuart, Stuart was hitting the drums so hard at that point that he went through the bass drum skin. And the, the gig had to stop, so there's no no kick drum and no spare kick drum. And they had to suspend the gig while the roadies dived on and put a new skin on it. And Sting had to stand down at the front and sing the Yellow Rose of Texas to a bass guitar uh, just to keep the audience happy and singing. Um, so th those are my memories of that gig. But a much nicer gig is Hamsmith Odeon, uh, the Apollo as now is, which uh, at the height of the uh, Tom Robinson band's early fame, we managed to play two, two nights uh, and it's 4,000 people. So that was a wonderful memory, a great high point playing that. Uh, and it's nice because the reason it's such a good, good venue at the Apollo is that it's wide rather than deep, which means nobody in the room is that far away from the stage. So despite mm. it being huge capacity, you actually get a really intimate rapport. It's a great place to go and see a band. And of all the gigs, I think, that, that were memorable from that time, I think the Rock Against Racism Carnival Against the Nazis in uh, spring of 1978 was the by far the most memorable because the National Front... Uh, very much like the kind of whole Brexit campaign now, uh, was kind of sowing dissent and spurring racist attacks on people of colour in the UK. And Rock Against Racism rose up as a way of kind of countering that from people who went, no, hold on, we like these people, we like this music. Rock music is black people's music. Um, and... We put on this carnival in Victoria Park, which is a kind of National Front heartland, 
Um, I say we grandly. It wasn't me. It was Rock Against Racism. They invited me to perform, so that's all. Um, but we had no idea how many people were going to come. The Clash were playing. Uh, X-Ray Specs were playing. Uh, Steel Pulse were headlining. It was a really important day, but we didn't know who would turn up for a political carnival in the middle of National Front territory. And we got a PA big enough for about 20,000 people and put up a scaffolding stage. And uh, 80,000 turned up. The PA was, like, hopelessly inadequate for it. But uh, it was astonishing to see that many people turn up to say, no, we're against racism. We are for people being part of a community. We're one race, the human race. And uh, it was a, a turning point. After that, the National Front did decline, not because of what we did on a stage in Victoria Park, but because the public went, no, we've had enough of this. Uh, so I think that's my proudest moment, to have been part of that and to have shared a stage with Steel Pulse and The Clash. Uh, so, yeah, memorable yeah. gigs. That's the one. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I should point out that Zephyr's having some technical issues, which is why he's kind of popping in and out. <laughs> popping in and out. <laughs> but uh, it's okay. We, we'll plow on. Hopefully he can make it back. He's probably restarting his computer. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I guess... How did you actually get get into music in the first place? Like, what was the like the first instrument? Well, my dad hated on? my dad hated pop music. The thing oh, is, be, being as old being as old as I am, you know, I was born in 1950, so I actually remember my brother coming home with the first Bill Haley and Presley, Elvis Presley records that came out. They were on 78 uh, inch uh, shellac uh, discs, so 70. Uh, I'm so used to having edit points uh, when working in radio that uh, I, I say nonsense. They aren't 78 inch, they're 78 RPM. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, my, my brother came home with a 78 RPM disc of Rock Around the Clock and then Heartbreak Hotel. And uh, I was four or five years old at the time. And my dad hated it. And my school teachers hated it. The headmaster at the school uh, actually gave a talk about how terrible this rock and roll was and stuff. So I knew there had to be something good in it, really. And then along came the Beatles in 63. And that was my generation. Uh, that was talking to us. And that was... Uh, the other stuff was my brother's music, but this was my music. And so uh, became a huge Beatles fan. And then because my dad had forced me to learn classical piano from the age of four and only allowed me to give it up at the age of 12 and I couldn't play it any better at the age of 12 than I could at the age of four that uh, I, I thought I'm going to take up something else and I tried the guitar and formed a school band which is why I'm so keen on school bands and um, you know learned all the three chord songs I could and that's how I basically got into it. Uh, Zephyr, you're back. 
<laughs> yes, I'm back. I've been I've been having some internet issues. Yeah. Um, so my video probably dropped out, and I probably dropped out, and I haven't been saying anything for a while. But yes, have no, you been I, hearing I, us though? That's the so thing. I I have, but I I missed your amazing story about Madison Square Gardens. I heard you about to talk about something to do with the Toms, and then I cut out, and I didn't hear what you say <laughs> said. But it's fine. I'll go have a listen back when I when we when the podcast releases. Um, I, I was very sad not to hear that story. It sounded great. I heard the ending of it. I heard you shout something, and then I I was gone. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but should should I ask a question? Because I, I I have unless yeah. I've how many questions are you done of yet? So sorry. Uh, it's your, it's you, definitely we, your we, turn. We, yeah, yes. definitely your turn. We've done how we got into music and uh, okay. So so Save, I've got I yeah. have got a question then. So how how's what's your role been in kind of promoting young artists? Because I know you've always been involved in projects, and you're obviously here with us, and we're young aspiring aspiring musician not inspiring aspiring musicians no um, inspiring inspiring uh, as well. okay inspiring thank you thank you and we also formed like school bands like you've, you've put a big emphasis on that that's how me and jules became mates really is from school bands and you know it's been very important to us so, like what's your role been with yeah promoting young artists well the thing was uh, it was always difficult to get on the radio traditionally you know i started making strides as a as a professional musician in the 70s trying to become one and it was really really hard uh, because you could only get on the radio if you had a plugger there were all these gatekeepers you you had to get people forget that in the 70s recording was so expensive and so much controlled by people who were experts that you couldn't even make a demo at home a, a, a home tape recorder of co- the quality to make a demo cost the equivalent of about two thousand pounds back then there was none of this get it, get your phone out and sing into it which is what you can do today and it'll sound okay so you had to get past the gatekeepers to make a demo had to get past the gatekeepers to make a record you had to get past the gatekeepers to get the record released and then you had to get the record onto the radio and if any of those failed nobody would ever hear your song so if radio 1 didn't play your record nobody would ever hear it and the only person who was there breaking that was john peel in the middle of the night he had his shown, he had peculiar tastes, but if John Peel played your record, you could bypass the whole bullshit of pluggers, the whole bullshit of the playlist, and get yourself heard by a national audience. And whole careers were built for decades, through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, uh, through John Peel giving one play, or two plays, or getting a session for a particular artist. And when John Peel died in 2004... That ladder was pulled up. Suddenly, you are back to the old world of you've got to have a plugger and the plugger will charge you a grand to plug your single to try and get it onto Radio 1 with no guarantee that they'll succeed and you have to pay the grand anyway. And I think that's outrageous. It's just fucking horrible that uh, you can't get heard. And, of course, the internet rode to the rescue because along came streaming, along came SoundCloud, well, first MySpace, but then SoundCloud, YouTube. And YouTube is kind of anti the music industry in some ways, although the music industry uses it. It's the very opposite of the music industry, because the 
people consuming are also the people creating consumers and creators that whole gap is broken down and if you have a brilliant idea one of these songs that we were talking about in part one if you come up with a song that is that good a song as good as fast car and you sit down on youtube and you sing it into your phone you could have a worldwide audience in six months flat just on word of mouth spreading on that you don't have to have any gatekeeper you don't have to pay any money to anybody so my job I've seen since I've had a job in radio and had an audience and had the opportunity to play whatever I liked has been to connect consumers with creators. So the, our, our audience at Six Music love music. That's why they listen to that station. It's, it's a music lover station. And so there are all these people out there creating music. And if you can put them in touch directly with each other and give out their URL of their SoundCloud or their Linktree or whatever on air, then the listeners can get in touch with the creators direct and start following them and start supporting their crowdfunding campaigns. And we get out the way. Our job is to put them in touch and then not interfere. Whereas the music industry's job is to insert themselves between those two and milk off as much of the money that's created as they possibly can. So make no mistake about it, the music industry is a pernicious force. It's actually basically evil, although there's some great people working for it who believe in it. And it has achieved some amazing things and people like Radiohead have come through the, the music industry. But as soon as they could, they ditched it and got themselves clear of it and established a direct connection with their audience. And I think f for me, my biggest message that I try to get over through the radio shows and through talking it, to, to musicians and artists and creators is connect direct with your audience as much as you possibly can. Your goal isn't to get on Radio 1. Your goal isn't to play Glastonbury. Those are part of the process. Those are the things to try and help you get an audience. But they aren't the goal itself, because they go. You played on Radio 1 today, but next week you were played on Radio 1 last week. Next year, you were played last year. When you get to, I was played on Radio 1 five years ago, it doesn't mean shit. Same with playing Glastonbury. I played Glastonbury five years ago. Who cares? But if you got yourself an extra thousand followers on YouTube today, that thousand followers isn't going to go away. It's going to be there a year's time. Hopefully they'll have told a load of other people and you'll have 2,000 by then. <laughs> so the direct connection with your audience is what really matters. That's the real goal of making music, is to end up with a paying audience for your music, and then you've got a career. And mm -hmm. the audience doesn't have to be huge. If there's only a 1,000 people <clears throat> who are dead hardcore, who are really keen on your, you and your music and what you do, who are part of your community, and they're willing to spend, say, 100 quid a year, on going to your concerts, buying your music, buying your T-shirts, supporting your crowdfunding campaigns. A thousand people paying a hundred quid a year, that's a hundred grand. That's a career right there with a tiny audience. So mass audience isn't where it's at. I think the key thing is a loyal audience and one that you communicate with directly and you don't need any industry in between. No middlemen. <laughs> Go direct to the audience. There we are. Yeah.
That's, thank you. That's a very, very good way on how to go step-by-step program on how to become a successful musician. Thank you. I'll be taking that <laughs> advice and we're not releasing it now. It's just for me. Um, <laughs> no. It's a good way to go on to, you wanted to talk about some up-and-coming artists uh, that you kind of promote on your Reddit show, but talk about them uh, on here, people that you, some tracks that you particularly like. Yeah, I mean, I thought we could just take one episode of the of the podcast, the, of my podcast, that you could link to um, and only choose yeah, artists from that one, uh, because I think last week we had a particularly good cross-section of stuff. Um, so... Yeah, uh, that, that's what I've sent to you. What uh, what did you make of them? Did you like any of the tracks? Yeah, um, there was some. The uh, yeah, there was some. There was some interesting. I mean, I, I actually really enjoyed just the first one. Actually, uh, that one um, that the, you kind of you came straight in there on, on with the program. Uh, that was really nice. Yeah, there was some. There's some interesting stuff that's coming through. Yeah, I I've kind of hold on. Let me. Uh, yeah, the song you're talking about is uh, Rachel Jean Harris and Battle Dress, and she's she's singing about a horse. Fuck's sake! And it's it's like four <laughs> four minutes, but it's so original, it's so fresh. And do you think we should play a bit of that? Um, Maddie Ashman uh, is a couple of songs after that. Uh, and that's that's interesting because, again, uh, Zeph's talking about TikTok and, and we're talking about YouTube. And she's been using Instagram uh, all through lockdown. She's a multi-instrumentalist. She's a really talented songwriter, great musician. She plays cello for other people anyway in orchestras and stuff. But she went onto Instagram during lockdown and made songs just with her, with her cello, uh, strumming it like a, like a guitar or um, plucking it like a bass and looping it and hitting it for percussion, looping it all up and then doing these great Instagram videos where she's three times in it doing the different things. Uh, and this is a song that started out like that and she's now produced it properly. It's called 6AM. Are we able to play that one? I'm up at 6am blaring siren and it's not that I have much to do but I read routine is meant to be good for you who knows if I'm doing it I've I've actually heard this. I think I've heard this on TikTok. I think this is actually blown up on TikTok. 
yeah it's I, I, so it, it gives me goosebumps great. that's that's amazing yeah it's yeah it's really nice oh. um yeah so the, i mean the cello is such a nice such a nice sound you know i have all the kind of orchestral instruments there's something really like the you know really deep about it yeah it's got, um, got the range yeah, the, the harmonies yeah it has, it's like it's like a tenor saxophone in the fact that it can kind of it can hit those highs and it can also really hit the low ends because I, I used to play cello and although i was awful and i hated it um i i i really do appreciate the sound of it like i i was really bad um but it's it's a really nice sound and it has i loved hitting the low notes i used to play like pirates of the caribbean on it and it, you can just hit those lows and it just sounds so cool and then it still has the really melodic sort of like a low like a playing on the low strings of a viola or something it's just really pretty isn't it isn't it great though that you know somebody could just sit at home with an instrument and make that noise and all she has to be is great and she is she's just a great musician with great creativity wonderful melody lines great lyrics truthful performance and then when somebody like me or somebody like you is just scrolling through on I don't know, uh, whatever social media you use to listen to your music on. For me, I'm listening to SoundCloud, uh, where a lot of music gets sent to me, and the BBC introducing Uploader. And I listen to about 200 tracks a week. Um, Click, listen, decide, click, listen, decide. And most of it is just recycling something they've heard before. Um, So you hit, being as old as I am, I sort of bang on about it, but I'm 72, you know, and so I've I've heard the 60s, I've heard the 50s, I've heard the 70s, I've heard the 80s, the 90s, the noughties, the 2010s. All of that has gone past me. I don't want to hear it again. I want to hear something I haven't, <laughs> I want to hear something I haven't heard before, like that record we just heard. I've never heard anything quite like that. It's original, it's fresh, it's new, it's interesting. So when you're going through a pile of songs, one after the other... And there's either some piano bother, bother warbling away there, tinkling the ivories, or some acoustic troubadour moaning about man's inhumanity to man. And then a record like that comes on and you go, oh, my God. <laughs> of course, it goes straight in the show. And to be able to have 16 or 17 of those in one hour of radio is such a privilege because uh, you know that it's going to make a difference to the people that you're playing when you're working on BBC introducing level because they're not, got it, not getting any other airplay at that point in their career. Mm. So, you know, even one play on Six Music in, at four in the morning will make a difference to their lives mm. and will help them reach that audience and connect with them. So it's a, it's a joyful thing to be able to do that for a, a living. And... If, if you can urge your, your viewers and listeners to um, <clears throat> just check that podcast out and subscribe to it, every week I've got another 16 or 17 of them. And uh, the more subscribers we get, the less likely it is the BBC will axe it. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very keen that people should support the podcast. You know, It's an important cause. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll put a, we'll put a link in, in the description. And uh, I guess, and what, what's the, uh, the link if people want to upload their stuff for uh, BBC Introducing? Uh, the, the important thing for getting it to me uh, is to first to go to the BBC Introducing website and upload there. You can put two songs a month up and the local show 
wherever you happen to live inside the UK, uh, will listen to it. And if they really like it, they'll forward it on to the central shows like myself um, and the Radio 1 Introducing show. But there's another way that people can get songs to my attention uh, separately from that, because I can't rely on the local DJs to always forward me the best stuff. Uh, and that's through Fresh on the Net. And that's my own personal music blog that I fund, but you know it's run by a team of volunteers. And uh, anybody can send us a track any week between Monday and Wednesday. So freshonthenet.co.uk uh, and if you... Uh, slash send will tell you how to send it and uh, how to get it to me and if it's on BBC introducing so it qualifies for airplay and it comes to me through fresh on the net I will listen I listen to those 200 tracks through there and uh, the ones that jump out the speakers are the ones that jump out the speakers should we hear another one sure which, which was the other one that you want to play? Well, we've got a choice. Um, uh, there's Worldwide Welshman, which is the one with two Indian musicians, which is a lovely thing. It's not like anything else I've heard this year, where there's a guy in North Wales who's a producer, and he's just collaborated remotely with uh, t two musicians in India. And it's just completely <laughs> bonkers, but it's, it's great. Should we hear that one? It's something like Tori Jaunre Jaunre. I don't know what it means, but I love the sound of it. Good effort. That, that yeah. does look about. That I mean, looks like Welshman. Smell. I, can't, I absolutely love as the name. I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. Www. Genius. But anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, here it is. Definitely the most unique thing we've ever played, I think. Isn't it great, though? <laughs> That's, That's crazy. Well, I, I, yeah. I love um, Indian percussion. I really need to learn because I think I'm, I'm hoping to travel to India in a year or so, and I'm hoping to go and learn how to do that properly because it's just incredible. Because it's all vocal as well. That when the, when they learn how to play it, they sing the rhythms, and it's like a language in of itself. Music, yes. Indian music theory is very interesting. It's very different, but it's very interesting. So, yeah. Jules, I liked the 
the, the singing on that because she comes in with that first note and you think, oh, that's beautiful. But you think, I could have sung that note, you know, and, and, <laughs> and she just holds the note and you think, oh, that's lovely. And then she suddenly goes off on this thing and you couldn't possibly have seen it. So I've sung it in a million years. Uh, the skill it takes to sing that and the, you, those different scales that they have. Uh, it's virtuoso singing and beautifully, beautifully done. But uh, it takes it completely out of our range of possibility. You could only do that with the real thing. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, I think we're getting close to time to wrap up. But just before, I, I want to give myself a... Uh, finishing this without asking you what it was like to write with Elton John. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> what, what happened was um, what I laughingly refer to as my 15 minutes of fame, which lasted between 1977 and 79, before it all came crashing down uh, when, when the hit stopped happening. During that period, I got invited to uh, the Guinness Book of Pop Records, had a a photo shoot with lots of people that had hits over the previous 30 years. And uh, because I was in the charts at the time, I somehow got invited. So I was on my Honda XL125 with the head uh, uh, pootling about in, in the rain for this place where the photo shoot was. And this vintage Bugatti pulls up beside me and a tinted window slides down. And a voice inside says, excuse me, can you tell me where the photo shoot is? And I said, "Well, I'm going." And I said, "Well, I'm going to it myself, uh, actually. So, um, will uh, just follow me." And so, uh, when I when we arrived, and I took my headphone, uh, my I took my helmet off. If you could do a little edit there, please. <laughs> I took my hel helmet off, and uh, the guy got out of the car. He saw it was that mouthy git Tom Robinson who'd been shooting off all this kind of uh, radical politics, anti-racist stuff on, uh, all over the place. And I saw it was this sort of massively overprivileged glam rock star, uh, Elton John. <laughs> and we got on like a house on fire. It was, uh, we, we were there for the photo. And I, I can probably send you a copy of the photo that we were b both in. Uh, and... Then uh, he said, uh, do you and your boyfriend want to come over for dinner tomorrow night? So we got invited over to uh, to his mansion in Windsor uh, and we had Chinese takeaway uh, <laughs> fetched, fetched by his manservant. Uh, and then next morning he was, he was next morning he was rushed to hospital with food poisoning. It was uh, it was all over the Evening Standard. Elton John rushed to hospital. We thought, oh my God, we helped kill him. Uh, but but anyway, when when two when two songwriters end up together, uh, the the thing they tend to do is write songs, you know. And at that time, he was estranged from Bernie Taupin. They'd had a bust up, and he was writing songs with uh, Gary Osborne instead. So there was an opportunity for me to write some lyrics, and I sent him a couple of lyrics I had spare. And he, Elton has this party trick that he does literally at parties, where he puts the phone book down um, on on the piano stand, and then sits and makes up a song singing any page you like from the phone book. Oh, yeah. He, and, and he can write that fast, just melodies seem to come to him. So he sat down and he wrote two songs in fairly short order to the two lyrics I'd given him. 
and uh, one of them was a single for him uh, that, that was called Sartorial Eloquence and one of them was a single for me called Never Gonna Fall In Love Again and neither of them bothered the charts in the least but uh, <laughs> at least I got to write them but then he sent me a piece of music in fact invited me over and played me this piece of music and I recorded it on my uh, recording Walkman <laughs> which just had music and no words uh, and I went away and wrote a song, wrote a lyric about uh, the time I fell in love with another boy at school at age 16 and kind of had a nervous breakdown and tried to kill myself. It was this kind of heart, heartbroken schoolboy um, longing from afar type song. And that kind of um, chimed with him. And I think he, he, he felt it strongly and he sang it and put it on his uh, album... Uh, the Fox and it was just called Elton's Song and they made a video for it shot at an English public school with uh, a younger boy f hopelessly in love with this older boy and it got banned on American television all kinds of stuff it was brilliant uh, so uh, it's on YouTube if you search out Elton John Elton's Song uh, that's that's my song right there and uh, that's the one I'm proudest of and he occasionally still plays it live Wow. Well, it's uh, a terrible pun incoming, but uh, it's your song, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it sort of is, isn't it? <laughs> Jules, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Zef. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. To total pleasure chatting with you guys. You know so much about your music. It's, it's really a, a joy to listen to this podcast. So thank you. Thanks. <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you. I hope, uh, as a listener, you, you enjoyed this podcast. Um, if you did, please do uh, subscribe to the podcast on whatever you're listening to. If you're on YouTube, give us a like. Uh, you can get in touch on the socials at S Music Podcast. And we'll be linking all the stuff that Tom talks about during the episode in uh, the description if, if you're interested in any of that. So um, we will see you next time. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Sidetracked, the music podcast. Yeah.